You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Well, I hope you're doing well this morning. I hope that the winter has not struck you with any afflictions that you can't shake. It seems like the Stinson household has a few of those trying to knock us down and knock us around, but you know what? We're tough. We're tough people. And with the Lord's help, we're mighty. Amen? Amen. So last week, Pastor Redberg um, unpacked Acts 2, 37 through 47. In that passage, we came to see how the church in Jerusalem was birthed powerfully by a display of God, by the working of the Holy Spirit, brought to new life, brought to new life 3,000 in a day at the preaching. They responded to Peter's message. They responded to the Spirit's work at the preaching of the word. It was a good thing. And as Luke tells us, as they received the word, they became saved, and God used the faithful preaching of the scriptures, the word of God, what Jason said last week, the word that confronts, confronts us with Jesus, convicts us of our need for him and our sin, our sin and desperate need for him, converts us to respond to the gospel and conforms us more and more into his image. The end of chapter 2 showed us how those who had come into fellowship with Jesus and then came into fellowship with each other in a church community whose activity was, though it was birthed supernaturally, it was quite normal. It was normal activity. The church is called to do just a few certain things. It's supposed to be the pillar and buttress of truth in the community. It's supposed to have fellowship and, and, and listen to the apostles' teaching. So though it was supernaturally birthed, it was normally active. And that's what we would wish for us, right? That's what we ask the Lord's help for. Today, we'll look at Acts 3, and we'll see Peter faithfully preaching the word, making known the gospel of Christ. This occasion for Peter's preaching is the miraculous healing of a man born lame. Let's read together in Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. 
but you did deny the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and how and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for, for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with, his, with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servants, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The word of Christ. Father, I just ask that, again, you give us ears to hear. Help us to hear your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, I'll endeavor to show you how the third chapter of Acts teaches us something very clear teaches us that Jesus Christ was the true Messiah sent by God. Therefore, we must repent and embrace him by faith. And we'll unpack this by looking at three points that come right out of the text. The first, we'll see the power of Christ. Secondly, we'll see the identity of Christ. And third, we'll see the response to Christ that we must have. And then we'll look at some applicable items that we can walk out the door with today. Are you ready for that? Are you awake today? Okay, woohoo! Getting a little Pentecostal. Let's. All right, woohoo! First, let's look at the power of Christ. Okay, power of Christ. The first ten verses of chapter three really set the stage for us. We're going to see something special, something amazing that draws crowds, makes people gawk and stare and wonder, how could this be? The first two verses show us that Peter and John were still engaged in the religious life of Jerusalem. They were going up to the temple, not to just merely um, cultivate continued tradition, but to honor God by participating in worship and in the hour of prayer. The time, the Bible says, was the ninth hour. The way they measure time was you know, from the, the 6 a.m. time. Some of you measure time that way. That's crazy. But it's from that 6 a.m. time they measured it. So the ninth hour would have been 3 p.m. This was the hour of prayer called the Tamid, the second and final sacrifice of the day held in the temple. Temple goers would come, um, and, and the throngs of people were, were largest at these times. This was the time of the sacrifice. This was the time when the crowds would be their, their largest. And following the introduction of Peter and John was another character, a man lame from birth. And obviously, some of the man's friends carried him to the preferable spot, the beautiful gate. And now where this gate was exactly, we 
Uh, it has been debated by most scholars, but it is thought that of the ten gates, this is the one that Josephus, the Ju- uh, first century Jewish historian, described as being made of Corinthian bronze. And it far exceeded the value of those plated with silver and set in gold. Here, the man would daily sit and seek to receive alms, seek to receive gifts from others. The man was lame from birth, literally from his mother's womb. Which, at this time, we know from Acts 4.22 that it was more than 40 years. Because it describes him in that passage as more than 40 years old. See, this healing that's about to happen causes a stir, and we'll see that in the next few weeks, that the religious leaders of Israel were kind of miffed that this happened. Everybody knew who this guy was. Everybody knew who this guy was. Everybody knew he was lame. His face was well known at the temple. He was a regular beggar. He's known to many. And at this point, the unassuming layman could have no idea what was about to happen to his life. He could have no idea of the events that were about to transpire in his life. The rabbinic teaching of the first century upheld three pillars of Jewish faith. That was the Torah, Worship and prayer. And the third was the giving of charity, the giving of gifts, the the kindness towards the poor. And this was precisely what the lame man hoped to capitalize on. Worshippers moved to give to those in need. Who's more needy than me sitting at the beautiful gate who has legs that don't work? And so our characters meet. Look at verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, I want to provide an illustration, but I don't want you to hear me calling this man a dog. When I first read that, I first thought about that, the eagerness at which he looks at Peter and John, I immediately thought of the four-legged critter that circles our table when we're eating dinner. Don't make eye contact with the dog, because if you do, his ears perk up, he looks at you with eyes, and his whole butt's wiggling because his tail's wagging. He's expecting that there's a compassionate soul sitting in that seat that would give him a morsel or give him a treat. It's with that eagerness that I just imagine this man, every person he makes eye contact with. Desperate for something. And Peter commanded, look at us. And the eagerness, I'm sure, can't you feel it? It grew. Like, look at us. And he did. He assumed their intent was to give him something. And yet Peter did give him something. It was something he was not expecting. Verse 6. But Peter said, 
I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. Now remember, Luke is our author. Luke is our author. And Luke was a meticulous reporter. We see that in the first chapter of Luke, he says this. He says um, to Theophilus, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as though who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certain um, certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So Luke was recording. He, he wanted to report everything. He, he interviewed people. He got eyewitness accounts. He, he spent time with other apostles. He understood the story. He listened to Mary. The beginning of Acts says the th- same thing. He said, now at the office, I'm going to pick up where the story left off. Now you're going to see what Jesus did through the apostles. Not only was he a great reporter, but what was his occupation? You know what? Say it loud. He's a doctor. He's a doctor. Now look, look at what he says. Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Lameness of the legs and feet is debilitating. They don't work. It's a significant disability, and to be lame from birth meant that his feet, ankles, legs had never been used, and so the strength needed to walk had never been active in his life. The symphony of quadriceps and hamstrings and calves and tendons and ligaments all working in harmony with with bone and joint from hip to toe had never been, had never existed. They were non-existent. And the memory of fibers electrified by the brain to simply take a step, something we so easily take for granted, had never existed But then a man speaks. And a man speaks in the name of Jesus. He speaks in the name of Jesus and then power, resurrection power comes to this man. Resurrection power comes to this man and that which was lame and never knew a step immediately became strong and he leapt. He leapt up. He got new legs. He got new legs. Oh, God. When we hear the preaching of the word, will we not leap? Will we not respond? What a scene this is. Isn't it? What a scene this is. The legs became strong enough to leap. He stands. It's a miracle indeed. He walks He walks with them into the temple. It was a work of the risen Christ. 
It was a foreshadowing. It was, it was the, the fulfillment of things were to, that were to come because of the Messiah, because of his exaltation, because of his glorification. Isaiah 35 says this, verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 700 years before Christ, there's a picture of the glory of the exalted Jesus in this man's life. We do well to listen to the word, amen? Peter may have had empty pockets, but what he had, he didn't keep to himself, did he? And so this, this actually leaves me with a question. How many people that you interact with every day know that you love Jesus? Do you meet enough people and do you share who is most valuable to you with them? Is he always on the tip of your tongue? The lame man's healing drew attention. All who witnesses, all who saw the man knew who he was. They're amazed by what happened. They're amazed by the power of Christ made manifest and gave the man new legs. A scene of wonder and amazement provided the opportunity for Peter to explain the miracle and how it related to Jesus. And this is our next point as we see the identity of Christ. Verse 11 serves as a transition. They moved from the inner courts. After they went, he was healed. He leapt up with joy, went with them into the inner courts, and then they came out, and they found themselves on the east side of the temple where Solomon's portico was. Peter addressed the, the crowd's perplexity. He addressed their perplexity, and he said, why, why, why are you astounded by this? I'll tell you what's going on. I want you to understand. Verse 12. He addressed the people and said, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As if it was through our power or piety that we've made him walk. Who, who is the author of this event? Who's the source of this event? Peter's going to say, it's, it's the God you say you know. It's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus. God is the source of this miracle. God is the source and to the stunned audience, Peter proclaimed it was the work of God, the God of our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he, he uses the familiar patriarchal formula. He says, this is who he is. The God that you say you know did this. He sent his servant, Jesus. Peter testifies first that Jesus was God's servant. The crowd would have understood immediately the significance. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Right? 52, 13 through the chapter 53 is one of the greatest servant songs. In fact, I think some of you have already heard it today in John's class. The very man whom they delivered to Pontius Pilate, the man who Pilate said, I, I found no fault in him. What, what do you want me to do? He says, I find no fault in him. What shall I do with him? And what did they say? Crucify him. Why? I found no fault. Crucify him. 
And then when it comes to to the, the tradition of releasing a prisoner, rather than the author of life, they took the taker of life, Barabbas, whose Luke's gospel uh, refers to as an insurrectionist and a murderer. They rather took Barabbas. They took a killer. And they offered up Jesus, who is innocent. Even Pilate himself said, what fault do we have in this man? He was innocent, and they offered him up to be crucified. Peter builds on the emphasis of Christ's identity. They denied God, who was the servant, the suffering servant sent by God. They denied the holy and righteous one in verse 14. This was not unlike the phrase the demon in Capernaum regarded, used regarding Christ's identity. Mark 1.24, the demon comes out and says, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons knew. The people wanted Barabbas. Jesus was God's servant. He was the, the Holy and Righteous One. And verse 15, he is the author of life. And that life, giving power, that authorship is testified because there's a new dude walking around. A guy you know. He's in your midst walking around because he's got new legs from Jesus. The risen Jesus, Peter testifies, they were witnesses. They were witnesses. They they know God raised him from the dead and now the glorified Jesus reigns and through him, the lame man in faith is now in perfect health and you see it right here. What a scene. What a scene. Like, do you feel it? The scriptures recorded the message of the prophets for the people to know the, the one whom God would send. Look down at verse 18. It says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. Luke liked to use the word all. He wanted to emphasize like everybody said it. Everybody said it. By the mouth of all the prophets. By the mouth of all the prophets. What what God foretold by their mouth that this Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Isaiah 53, 6. um, 53, 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he... He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. He was chastised. The Prince of Peace was chastised for us. And we get peace because of that. As recipients of the gospel, we get peace with God. And with his wounds, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our suffering Messiah. In our place. This substitutionary suffering that he did in our place. 
so that we could have peace and freedom and joy forevermore. Aren't you thankful? Hallelujah. Other passages, such as Psalm 22 and 31, 34, and 69, Jeremiah 11, Zechariah 12, by the Holy Spirit's enlightening became known to the early Christians as passages. These were passages. This is, this is what the scriptures have been telling us. This was the suffering servant who's coming to save us. Verse 22, Peter refers to Deuteronomy 18. There were talks about Moses predicting that another prophet would come. Another prophet like Moses would come and would serve in the, in the same mediatorial role as he did, but in a superior way. And so they were looking and waiting for this prophet to come. And they knew the consequence of not listening to him. They would be cut off. The scripture spoke of the coming Messiah, the servant of God sent to save, spoke of it. Once we're confronted with the reality of his identity, it's imperative that we have to respond. And so Peter's going to ask the crowd to respond. He's going to ask the crowd to respond. And this is the third point, the response to Christ. Verse 17, but I know you acted in ignorance. I know you acted in ignorance. And, you know, ignorance is, is a funny thing. It's made, you know, ignore when you ignore something, you reject it, you deny it. And here's the idea. They acted in ignorance. Um, in the South, we'd, we'd say, bless, bless, bless your heart. You're ignorant. Had no idea what, what you're doing. And Jesus himself would testify to this. As he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The author of life dying on the cross, perishing a human death and interceding for the people that put him there. The people rejected God's Christ. He was in their midst. Surely they had heard of his healings. Surely they had heard of him casting out demons. Surely they had heard. Well, they had heard. And it had caused such a stir that all of Jerusalem was crazy because of it. And now you've got these people who followed him. And now this, this Holy Spirit has descended upon them. And now there's this church of 3,000 people all following Jesus. When the author of life was in your midst, crowd, you rejected him and you denied him. Verse 19. He says all these things. He said, I know you're ignorant of this. This is what God foretold was coming. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Repent. And see, he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to, okay, this is the identity. You've seen the power of Jesus, the exalted Christ on display. You've understood his identity because I've told you how the prophets bore witness to this. Now you need to respond. You need to repent. You're confronted with the truth about who he is. Peter emphasized three points, three ideas of repentance in this passage. He says that, 
First, they'll have the forgiveness of sin. Their sins will be blotted out. Second, times of refreshing would come. And third, God would send Jesus appointed for them. And first, so Peter describes the forgiveness offered by God as the blotting out of sins as far as the east is from the west. That the word he uses when he's talking about blotting out, it's the same word that in Revelation where it talks about those who don't know Christ are blotted out from the book of life. Like, that's an erasure, right? It's, you're gone, right? But here in the positive, it's saying your sins will be blotted out. Now you have a chance. You denied him then, don't deny him now. You have a chance. Respond. It's the same idea as Psalm 51, 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. David's prayer of repentance, blot out my iniquities. Erase them. Peter says this is what's going to happen. In Isaiah 43, God had revealed this is his identity. He said, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember not your sins. Oh, what a God. Because you and I look in the mirror every day and we know, we know our sins, don't we? And we can say hallelujah because we have an amazing God who is merciful and gracious. Amen? Amen. So the first result, he'll blot out the sins. You repent, you turn, you turn to God, blot out your sins. The second, Peter spoke of times of refreshing. And we could easily get lost and muddle like, what does that mean? Like a cool breeze? And yeah, actually, the sense is like a cool, refreshing breeze. But when you think about what has just happened at the end of Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit with power has come, when the Holy Spirit with power has come, the times of refreshment, it's cumulative right, right here. So you'll, you'll be forgiven, you'll receive the Holy Spirit, right? And you'll, you'll be in union with God, and you'll be able to have communion with God through the Holy Spirit. That's a time of refreshing, Ephesians 1, 13, it says, in him, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How refreshing is that? To be able to read the word of God and hear it as it is to see yourself on the page and see sin, but yet see the remedy for sin on every page, bearing witness to Jesus Christ. That you can commune with the holy God, the one who upholds everything, the chlorophyll and all those trees that is about to go dormant because of this crazy Minnesota winter. He upholds that. The breath in your lungs, he upholds that. The pH balance of your bloodstream, he upholds that the author of life. You can commune with this God. The gift of the Holy Spirit in your life is so that you can hear and know the word. That you can participate with others who are united to God through fellowship in Jesus. That you can proclaim with boldness and be a witness unto death, if needed, to the gospel. There's this season of refreshment that happens as, as people come into the presence of God via the Holy Spirit. And that's the idea. It says there, it says, in the presence, that by the Lord's presence is this time of refreshing. 
times of refreshing, verse 20, may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ. Pointing for you, that third place. May send the Christ. Peter's sermon, as we saw in Acts 2, it has an eschatological component, a last things kind of component. When Jesus came onto the scene, the end times began. Because the kingdom came onto the scene. The kingdom of God is now at hand. And so he's pointing so that the full restoration of the gospel of Christ, Jesus returning to take his own, that's the appointment for you. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this is highlighted. This reality of Christ coming, Jesus coming to earth, began the restoration of all things, which will be fully consummated at his final return. Verse 21 emphasizes this idea. Whom heaven must receive, he's at the right hand of God, during this time for the, for the restoring of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. God has foretold this. Christ is received unto heaven and there reigns as the glorified servant, the exalted Savior, whose power has now been put on display in a miraculous healing that the crowds witnessed. And what about this man with new legs? We should get back to him. We should figure out what's going on with him, shouldn't we? What about the guy with new legs? The lame man made new the man leaping and praising God. Who would he say Jesus was? What would he say? You know, if you, if you look back at this healing, Peter says, rise up and walk. Verse 7, he took him by the hand, raised him up. Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. The man had received a miraculous physical healing. But you know, he had always sat there at Beautiful Gate. The crowd knew him as the guy who sat there at the beautiful gate. His legs were lame. He was never ceremonially clean enough to go into the temple. But see, when we meet Jesus, we come into complete transformation, do we not? This picture of this man who leaps and praises God and goes into the temple is a, is a picture of this radical spiritual wholeness that happens to us when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, where we can enter into the presence of God and worship. The brokenness of this world, our own sin, what we see on the news, the tragedies, the brokenness, all of that. You know what? None of that. Listen to me. None of that. None of that. Your sin, that brokenness, is more powerful than the transforming power of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Do you believe that? Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? And so then respond. 
So how do, how do we, how do we as a people at Redeemer Bible Church, how do we respond? There's three things. We need to understand and know the identity of Jesus. We don't need to be ignorant. Right? I mean, I'm not calling you ignorant. Right? Ignorance for me is defined by looking in the mirror, okay? We need to know and understand who Jesus Christ is, the scriptures that testify to who he is. You need to know that. You need to know his identity. We also need to respond to him with repentance and faith. We need to walk with new legs. We need to walk with new life. The way we live has to testify that what we believe is true. We could be sinfully ignorant. I think I'm always amazed at the people I've talked to who, who don't believe in Christ and don't want anything to do with them. It's, it's easy to blame something or someone for disbelief. Right? The hypocrisy of Christians. Yeah, we're hypocrites. But don't let our hypocrisy point you away from Jesus. Let it show you that we all desperately need Jesus. Amen? There is not a moment in my life. There's, people could see me at the gas station and say, oh, that, he's supposed to be a Christian. That's what I thought. People will blame that. Or they'll take the characters that the world provides. And who rules the world? Forces of darkness rule the world. And so what, what picture are they going to paint of Christianity? Right? They're going to take all the caricatures of the buffoons that have proclaimed the name of Christ. And that's going to be the caricature. And so people will say, I don't, want, I don't want anything to do with that. And that's exactly what Satan wants. But see, here's the thing. Don't let you be one of the caricatures. Don't let you be one of the caricatures. Don't let yourself be one of the caricatures. Right? Follow Jesus with faithfulness. Respond to him. Love him. We can also be religi religiously ignorant. You see, Peter was talking to a crowd who was at the temple who knew and were familiar with the practices of Yahweh and God and how to go there and what times to go there. They were familiar with all those things. They were familiar with the Torah. They are familiar with rabbinic teaching. And yet when the Savior was in their midst, they were ignorant to his presence. And even some said, no, we, he's not. He's not the Messiah. In Western evangelicalism, it's easy to just be familiar. We can read all the right books. We can go to all the conferences. We can do all that stuff. We can put the fish on our car. We can listen to the Christian radio. right? But inside, we can be full of dead bodies, right? is what Jesus says to the religious Pharisees in Matthew 23. We could do that. And we could just be oblivious. Our Bibles could sit on the shelf and just collect dust. Are, are you communing with the Lord enough in the Word of God to let the Word of God convict you so that you might be transformed every day into the likeness and image of Jesus? You're not going to know what his prescribed will for your life is unless you're in the Word of God. Amen? And so I want to challenge. Some of you are not in the Bible enough. You don't know the Word well enough. And so you dabble in the world. You see, we still choose Barabbas today, often. 
Rather than submitting ourselves to the author of life, we often choose the things that are trying to kill us. The world wants to give you a perspective and a worldview that is not godly. And this is, for me, as much as it is for you, we, we, we have to pay attention. We can't be ignorant to what's going on. We can't allow our minds to be warped by philosophy that has nothing to do with Jesus. I, I beg you, pay attention, evaluate your life right now. What are you letting in? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Let's cut it off. Amen? Let us not choose Barabbas. See, now, as you hear that, you say, oh, yes, the, the weight of that. But see, this is why we come to the table. We come to the table as believers, as baptized believers who, who have responded to the gospel message and know that though we are always changing, we're always turning in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ because God offers a hand of salvation to us the olive branch of peace between a holy God and our sinful, rebellious life. God says, I want to give you peace because I crushed my son. And we remember that here. And so I, I'm asking you to respond in faith and repentance. If, if you're here today and you never responded to the gospel message, Jesus says, come. Come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You know what kind of rest he's talking about? He's talking about the joy-filled, eternal rest that revives the soul from millennia upon millennia, upon eternity upon eternity, where you can with joy sing praises to Jesus our King. That's for you. That's the offer. So when we come to the table, the believers in the room who've been baptized and you haven't, you, you respond to that gospel message. Come talk to me afterwards. I want to introduce you to my Savior. We come to this table and you, and you realize, I, I haven't moved forward. I haven't identified my life as a Christian through baptism. Do that. Use this time to, to pray and ask God for the strength and obedience to step forward and come to one of the pastors and let's talk about, about getting you baptized. Because that's the sign, Right? The New Testament assumes that the churches were full of baptized believers. Finally, if, if, you're, if you're here today and we come to this table when, the, when Darren comes up and we listen to the music and we reflect and we respond and you're thinking about all the places that you've chosen, that you've chosen what the world offers rather than what Jesus offers, repent and know that he loves you and that you're here today because he wants to transform your life. He wants to help you and empower you and enable you to follow him. So listen to me. Hear him. Hear him. Let's pray. Father, as we enter this time of reflection, there are all kinds of responses around the room that have to happen. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you make it so? Would you let us as a people come and delight and marvel at the risen King who still reigns, who saves, who transforms? Lord, we expect that you're going to do a mighty work.
we, your people, can see and experience in our own lives, we know you've already done it. And so, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to worship you in spirit and truth? Would you help us to, to glorify your name? We ask this in the name of Christ.